0: To uh, ISICOS Giants in Sports Medicine. I'm Gary Paling and was the second um, president of ISICOS and the emeritus editor in chief of the Journal of Arthroscopy. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Burkhardt, a renowned shoulder surgeon from San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Steve. I I wanna ask, first of all, uh, a little bit about how you grew up and uh, where you grew up and uh, what were the influences in your young years?
1: Um, Well, I grew up in a small town in central Texas called Taylor, Texas. It was largely an agricultural community. Uh, It was pretty much a blue collar town. Everyone there was involved either in some sort of blue collar job or agriculture. Um, so, um, more of a working class type of a town. Um, it was after world war II. It was a very optimistic time in the United States and in Texas, everyone, my my father had gotten back from world war II as had all the men of his age and, um, they were going to start a new life. And, uh, so there was a lot of, of optimism and hope and, uh, just hard work that went on. Both my parents were hardworking people. Uh, they were high school graduates. Uh, no one in my family had ever gone to college. And um, my mother was a secretary my, at an insurance office. My dad uh, uh, worked at the post office, was delivered mail. And uh, both my grandfathers were farmers and ranchers. Um, we, my parents stressed education but we didn't really have any books in our home. We had a set of encyclopedias. And so that was kind of what I enjoyed. I enjoyed reading, but it was mostly getting down one of the encyclopedias and, and turning to something that interested me and to start reading about it. And it, I think it was, you know, it was a small town too. And so there was a lot of camaraderie in school. You know, the, the guys played pretty much all the sports. You know, I uh, played Football and basketball and baseball. Sports was a big part of my life. Um, but I always felt, I always knew I wanted to go to college. My uh, parents encouraged that.
0: So um, what direction did you go when you was, as far as when you were making the decision about where to go in high school?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure I could afford to go to college. And so I heard about these uh military academy positions that you could get appointed to and you get a free education. And I always thought I'd like to be a pilot. So, and you had to get a congressional appointment. So I applied to our congressman for an appointment to the Air Force Academy. And uh, I was I became a finalist. I think they narrowed it down to three finalists. And the three of us had to go to Bergstrom Air Force Base and get a physical And at the end, they told me I had flunked my physical, which I could not believe. And I said, well, what did I flunk? They said the color vision. And, you know, they had these cards that had a lot of colored dots, and you were supposed to make out a number from those dots. And I couldn't see any of the red or green ones. And they said, well, you're totally red-green deficient, and therefore, you're not going to be approved to be a pilot. And they uh, he said, you could still probably go to the Air Force Academy, but you, you'll never be approved to be a pilot. I said, well, why would I want to go to the Air Force Academy if I can't <laughs> learn to fly planes? And so I decided that I would do something else and, and I withdrew my application. But the interesting thing is, I would never have gone into medicine if I'd had normal color vision. So you never know which way life is going to take you. But, uh, but I ended up getting a an academic scholarship to rice university in houston and uh i majored in mechanical engineering and uh and that ended up being a pretty good fit but then i realized i really had a passion for medicine and someone our in our community growing up that i really admired was our family doctor and i thought you know it'd be really neat to be a doctor in a small town and i realized that I could at least get loans to go to medical school. So uh, then my junior year started adding on pre-med electives. So I got a mechanical engineering degree with all and satisfied all the pre-med requirements and then uh, applied to medical school after that and went to medical school. But the interesting thing about the color vision, so as, as you know, I went on to become a surgeon and no one anywhere along the way in my surgical training check to see if I could see the color red, <laughs> which I can see bright red. I can see blood. But uh, at any rate, I thought, okay, a pilot has to see red or he gets disqualified, but a surgeon doesn't have to see red. I never quite understood that. Yeah. But, well, well maybe
0: out. if you were going to be a pathologist, it would be different. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Maybe so. All
0: right. Well, I know that you then went on after medical, where did you go to medical school?
1: I went to the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, just off the Texas coast there. And uh, and I really became uh, uh, so interested in orthopedics at that point, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had thought I would want to be a family practitioner probably, but when I took my orthopedic rotation I just became so enamored by that subject, and it just seemed so interesting to me, and uh, and so then um, I applied to orthopedic uh, residencies, and um, I got I went to a residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, I drove from Texas to Minnesota for my for my interview. That's a long trip. I don't know; it's a couple of thousand miles. I think but I'd never flown on an airplane. I didn't know how to make (laughs) reservations to get on a plane or anything. And I didn't think I had enough money for that. So I drove my and gasoline wasn't so expensive. So I drove to Minnesota for an interview, but they accepted me. And uh, so that's where my residency was. And then uh, after that, I did a fellowship with Bob Larson in Eugene, Oregon in sports medicine. That was in the early days of arthroscopy. Bob and his uh, associates there were just beginning to learn how to do knee arthroscopy. So they couldn't really teach it to me. I had to learn with them and then continue teaching myself once I was in practice.
0: And what did you notice about uh, knee arthroscopy?
1: Well, you know, even with those early attempts, like I said, Dr. Larson was just learning himself, but I saw how quickly patients improved. Because when I was a resident, we had done open meniscectomies, and we'd keep those people in the hospital three to five days. And then they'd be on crutches for a couple of weeks, oftentimes. And, you know, the people with uh, knee arthroscopies just were up and moving and doing things right away. And that struck me. And and, and at that time, there really was no one in San Antonio, where, which is where I ended up coming to practice, doing uh, arthroscopy of any sort. So uh, that was why it opened for me to at least get started in uh, knee arthroscopy. And, and the group that I joined encouraged that and wanted me to do that. Plus, they made me the designated shoulder doctor.
0: Now, why is it that they gave you the shoulder doctor job? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I, I thought initially, uh, mistakenly, that they somehow suspected that I had really good training in shoulder Uh, but I thanked one of my senior partners, Lamar Colley, one day for sending me all these really interesting but difficult shoulder cases. And uh, Lamar was a big gruff guy with a deep voice and he said, uh, and he called everyone son. And he said, he said, said, son, it's not a compliment. He said, "Uh, we always make the the new guy, the shoulder guy because shoulders do terrible, the results are terrible. (laughs) And we don't wanna have terrible results. We're gonna put them all onto you. (laughs) And he was, you know, bluntly honest with me, but I thought, you know, I'm seeing how well the knees do with arthroscopic treatment. Surely it would be the same with shoulder if we could just do shoulder arthroscopy.
0: All right. So that that put you into a situation where you were now uh, all of a sudden in the early days of arthroscopy. we didn't have a lot of tools, we didn't have anything, and and how different is it uh, operating on the shoulder as compared to the knee as far as tools are concerned?
1: Yeah, I I had not really thought about it too much until that point, but uh, basically almost everything they were doing with knee arthroscopy back then was excisional. It wasn't repair or reconstruction, So, you know, you just had to have some biters and and trim up a torn meniscus, or you had to remove a loose body with a grasper, but it was all excisional. But when I looked at what we were doing in the shoulder, which was mostly instability repairs and rotator cuff repairs, they were repairs. There were very few instances of just removing loose bodies or or even if you had a bucket handle labrum tear, that usually was not the extent of the pathology. So just excising the bucket handle probably wouldn't be all that was needed. So, you know, granted, I tried some early things where um, I would do diagnostic arthroscopies. And in fact, there were uh, a couple of uh, um, bucket handle superior labrum tears that I excised that improved somewhat but those were very few and far between. And so it was a bit frustrating, I was, but I was beginning to see what the anatomy looked like from inside out, because except for the few of us that were scoping shoulders, no one had really seen what the normal anatomy of the intact shoulder looks like because you destroyed structures on the way in if you opened it up. And uh, so, That was interesting, and and there was a very small group of us doing these things then, and Steve Snyder, my good friend, he started a shoulder arthroscopy study group uh, where we would uh, send videos around uh, to the members of this group, and you had to answer, you had to reply to the video, and you had to say what you thought the pathology was or was it even pathologic was it a normal structure that was being pointed out or what and um, if you didn't reply you'd get kicked out out of the group but it, it was a good way to come to consensus on what was normal anatomy and what wasn't so that was kind of the first step and then you know from there we had to get some instruments and that, that's a whole other story there
0: yeah well steve i i remember um way back in the very early part of it i remember you brought your children in and there was uh you gave a talk very basic talk uh about uh mr wizard and uh also the rotator cable and bridges and and you talked about the balance of the rotator cuff that was all new stuff uh how how did that all come about
1: Yeah, you know, I I developed an interest in some biomechanical things early on because, you know, that was my college degree in mechanical engineering. And I thought there were some things that were mechanically wrong with some of the types of treatments that were being done back then. And probably the the most striking example was uh, the most common um, way to cover a deficient area of rotator cuff was a tendon transfer, a subscapularis transfer back in the 80s. A lot was being written about it. But basically, if you had a supraspinatus infraspinatus tear that was retracted and you couldn't get it back to the bone bed, then you, the, what this technique was, was to take down the upper two thirds of the normal subscap, take it off of its, disrupt its normal insertion and transfer it up over the top of the cuff and close the hole. The problem with that was then what you did is you took the centroid or the center of the, the action of the force of the uh, subscap. You moved it from a point below the center of rotation of the, of the uh, humeral head to a point above the center of the rotation of the humeral head. So you reverse the direction of the moment created by that force. So you actually were making it worse, even though you might cover the whole you made the the biomechanics of the shoulder much worse, irretrievably worse, and so that became kind of my first uh, uh, mission of biomechanical corrections. Okay, and uh, so so there were some others after that, several others. We can you mentioned the rotator cable, and I can get into that too. But these various mechanical concepts, you know, they can be very boring and difficult to transmit to a medical audience, because they may not really be that familiar with uh, the mechanical uh, lingo. And so I remembered from when I was a kid, there was a TV show called Watch Mr. Wizard. And there was a man named Don Herbert, he was like the neighborhood scientist, uh, amateur scientist. And he, he would show he would explain uh, principles of physics and biomechanics, or, or just mechanics that were Kind of abstract concepts, but he would use simple things in his kitchen or his garage, and he would show the neighborhood kids how these things work. He would use an air compressor with a ping-pong ball to show the Bernoulli effect and various things like that, how lift is created on an airplane wing. And so that was so interesting to me as a kid. I thought, well, I'll just try to translate that into, you know, 1980s, 1990s, and see if it works on adults. And, uh, and my kids were all in on it. They wanted to do it. And I dressed up like Don Herbert did with a little bow tie and, and white shirt and acted kind of goofy uh, for these things. But I would explain with just simple little things we had in the kitchen about these biomechanical concepts. And the kids would have speaking roles in it. Anyway, that was a big hit for whatever reason. And I think we ended up doing about seven or eight of those over the years gradually as my kids got older I think the last one we did my my son was actually even in college (laughs) so and he was about 10 or 11 on the first one
0: yeah well I can tell you I I still remember when I said oh my gosh I never understood this stuff and then you came out and started talking about it I said I can understand this now it was it, it really was very very good
1: but to, but to get back then to, you know, you ask about the rotator cable, the rotator yeah. cable, rotator crescent, and then, you know, just, um, you know, how we kind of got started on that. But I think that, to me, every time I, from the time I first started doing rotator cuff surgery, when I would see a retracted super-inferous tear that had that crescent-shaped margin to it, I always thought it looked like a sp- suspension bridge. It looked just like the Golden Gate Bridge. And that the attachments were just like those piers on the end of a, of a cable that had that uh, big curve to it, and and I thought that that the mechanics of that should be the same as a suspension bridge, and and that those attachments we found then from uh, from cadaver dissections of intact specimens that the there were strong cable attachments. That is the normal. Uh, capsule tendon had this cable-like structure that seemed to conform to that whole uh, suspension bridge type of a configuration, and then we did some biomechanical tests that actually showed that the tissue beyond that, the rotor, rotator crescent, was stress shielded relatively, stress shielded by the rotator cable. Anyway, it just was fascinating to me so that I thought, well, it's most important if you can't repair anything else, repair those cable attachments. And so kind of one thing led to another, but I thought these were very important concepts that nobody had ever uh, elucidated or maybe thought of or brought up for sure. And I was going to try to get them out there any way I could.
0: All right. Um, All right. It was and it's been very effective and it really has changed and now uh, shoulder surgery is not one of those things that. um, All have poor results As dramatic improvement as far as uh, those things are concerned now. You did a lot, um, you know, as, uh, as uh, the journal editor, I got many of the things and, <clears throat> and you did biomechanical research. You did that with people. Uh, you also developed many tools that, uh, who were the people that you worked with in both of those areas in the biomechanical and also in tool development?
1: Um, let me talk about the biomechanical research first, because yeah. that actually, I felt, needed to come ahead of the tools, um, and uh, basically started out by doing um, some studies at the DonJoy Lab in Carlsbad, California, and the reason for that is I just coincidentally got teamed up with Greg Nelson, who at that time was the Uh, president of Donjoy, which was primarily a um, a knee brace company at that time. And um, we got teamed up at an Anna golf tournament and I'm a terrible golfer and he's a great golfer, but, you know, I'm sure it was a long day for him, but he was such a nice guy. And he talked about that. He had this biomechanical lab. And so anyway, um, I thought about, well, maybe he said I would be welcome to use it for some uh, experiments. And so so after one of Jim Esch's meetings, I asked Jim if I could take some of the cadavers that were kind of lightly used and take them to the Donjoy lab and and do some biomechanical studies uh, on initially the strength of our knots in holding uh, rotator cuff repairs. And so and these, this was single pull to failure. It wasn't cyclic loading, but it was a good start. And his uh, director of the lab, Pat Colley, was excellent at helping me with all that. And that led to a few papers. But then I, I realized, I think we really need to do um, some cyclic loading studies. And by that time, the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio had a new lab director, Kerry Athanasio, who was a PhD bioengineer. And we became good friends. And I talked to Carrie about what I w- would like to do with cyclic loading. And basically, my vision of this was that we needed to have a good, if we were gonna really take arthroscopy out there and change the standard of care from open to arthroscopic, we needed to prove that our repairs were at least as strong as the open repairs. So I said, I wanna do cyclic loading studies of open repair constructs that we've done on cadaver, cadavers compare them to arthroscopic constructs with suture anchors that we've done on cadavers. And that then would give us an ethical basis for saying, you know, we really do need to work at converting over because this is just as good and the morbidity is much less. And so we did um, those loading experiments which were published in the Arthroscopy Journal and it showed that the um, arthroscopic uh, repairs actually were stronger than the open standard gold standard repairs through bone tunnels. So to me, that was a, a real turning point. I said, well, this, is, it, this makes it ethical to do. It makes it, you know, we can really push forward on this thing now. And the instrument development was coming along at that point. And uh, so um, that, that was uh, something that kind of developed concurrently after that. Um, so Kerry Athanasio then moved to Rice University, and he and I were still able to Collaborate even after he moved because I was an alumnus of Rice and uh, it was still in Texas. And, you know, I would just have to go from San Antonio to Houston to do those uh, experiments. As far as the tools, you know, I originally, before we even had suture anchors, I was doing some side to side repairs and I had my own suture passers and things. And I could, I had a lot of ideas, but I didn't have anyone that was willing to make these things for me. And I, um, found an aircraft machinist in San Antonio that could make complex shapes, relatively complex. And um, so he made some of these things for me out of surgical grade steel. And uh, so, and you know, they were not anything that were was being left in the shoulder or anything. So it wasn't like they needed FDA approval at all. And then not pushers, that's the type of thing. So that that, and then, you know, once uh, I was doing that, I had more ideas for more advanced uh, suture passing techniques and suture anchors, could not get any arthroscopy company interested in them. I took, uh, I took it to all of the, I took prototypes and I took sketches to all the major companies. And I said, you know, this is just a pipe dream. Um, we, we understand knee arthroscopy. We think they've kind of reached their peak. Shoulder is not going to go anywhere. It's just not going to be possible to do that. And I wasn't, so I wasn't going to take no for an answer. And finally, I ran into a, a guy, uh, into uh, Reinhold meeting. He was uh, the, the president of Arthrex, if that one still is. And um, anyway, he had a little booth, and uh, I talked to Reinhold and I said, God, that sounds very interesting. They only had a couple of knee products, they didn't have anything for the shoulder. It was a a company in need of ideas for products. And I was in need of a company that would make products. So it was a perfect, <laughs> perfect. fit, yeah. And so so Reinhold had just hired an engineer for the first time, Don Grafton. In fact, I went to the, visit them in Florida and they had three employees. They had, uh, they had Don, uh, they had a secretary who was also did their payroll. And then they had a kind of a roving uh, sales guy and that was it. And uh, they had uh, Arthrex, uh headquarters in Naples was like a 20 by 30 foot room that was mostly empty. And so it was <laughs> at it's very, very infancy. And uh, but I was very encouraged. And I thought, I can work with these guys. This is going to be cool. And, and Don and I became best of friends. Um, Don had never seen, Don Grafton had never seen a shoulder surgery. I invited him to San Antonio to kind of stand in the corner. I'd point out things on the monitor, and so I would, I would um, show him what I could do arthroscopically. And then now I reached this point, and now I don't have an instrument that can do these two things. And then it, and then I would have to open it to do the mini open to finish up. So, so then uh, Don would come to my house in the evening. And we'd sketch things out and we'd brainstorm on how to how to perform those functions with various tools and so we did this over the years and and developed uh, many of the many of the uh, instruments and implants um like you know the swivel lock and the uh some of the suture passers and a lot of the different anchors and so it was a very uh fun time, really, to be developing these things. And there were such long odds against it, too, because, you know, even, well, I don't know if you want me to get into this now. But you know, there were just a few of us doing this. And, and, you know, even if there had been this huge demand, there weren't enough surgeons to be able to meet that demand. So it wasn't a matter of just being able to do it, we had to teach huge numbers of surgeons how to do it. And yeah, so anyway, a lot of uh, challenges.
0: Well, there were many challenges and there were very few people that, uh, particularly in the beginning, you know, uh, I mean, most people had difficulty just looking in a knee, you know, and uh, as you pointed out, you just have to get a few pieces out in order for it now you're going to ask him to do complex uh, reconstructions and how you have to do it It becomes much much more complex right and um, but i but i think over time it became i don't know how how many tools have you perfected over the years
1: well you know as things developed i had an exclusive contract with arthrex so all their All of the things uh, have uh, been with Arthrex, and so uh, if they have over, they market still over 700 products of mine, and those those are covered by 65 patents. Wow,
0: wow! All right, that's really pretty terrific. uh, No, you you talked about this group that you had together, and um, there is a group called the Three Amigos. Can you tell us a little about that?
1: Yeah. Well, the three amigos are me and Steve Snyder and Jim Ash. Yeah. And we met in the early 80s sometime. And, you know, immediately uh, uh became friends. I mean, there weren't many very many people interested in shoulder arthroscopy at the time. And if you met somebody that was, the you kind of latched on to them um, as your friends. Um and we continue to be very good friends uh, until now. Uh, and I think one of the things that we all recognized was we were very invested in uh, teaching other surgeons how to to do these things. We wanted to teach as many people as possible. We knew that we could do them, but we needed to teach it, and then we needed to make the techniques and the instrumentation simple enough that you know even um, an average surgeon who only did a few of these now and then would still be able to do it. Wouldn't it be just the super specialist? And so, um, you know, with an eye toward that, we knew that was gonna take a long time to do. It was gonna take years, if not decades. And uh, so during that time, we became, I think, somewhat of a support group for each other to uh, encourage each other Even though, you know, so much of the establishment was telling us that, you know, you're going to fail, this is no good, uh, that we could keep at it for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and not get discouraged. And then at some point, there was that tipping point where there was a critical mass of surgeons where that pushed this into the mainstream, pushed arthroscopy into the mainstream. And to see that happen during all three of our careers was just so gratifying. And so we're still best of friends. We get together a few times a year. And in fact, we're uh, the Arthroscopy Association, Anna is going to uh, have a meeting this coming December uh, that is gonna uh, have the three amigos, uh, the three of us give color commentary to uh, the various talks, mainly kind of relating the history of how this all developed. So yeah,
0: that's really good, yeah, really good.
1: I'm pleased by that
0: yes um, all right now um, i know that uh, you you talked about being able to teach other people um, i know you not only traveled um, far and wide to many places but you also had many people come to you uh, can you give us a kind of an idea of about how many people were coming and I think you had someone that uh, kept track of it, at least for a period of time. uh, How how did that all go?
1: Well, um, I had uh, a secretary who kept a log of all my visitors. Uh, So, you know, international and domestic visitors. And uh, she retired in 2009. And then I retired 10 years later at the end of 2019. And, um, so up until that point, so up, up until 2009, I had had over 3000 international visitors. Oh my now I'm sure I had at least that many, you know, over the next 10 years, cause it, there were still 10 years left, but you know, we'd have anywhere from most days we'd have anywhere from two or three visitors up to sometimes 25 visitors. So, and, you know, I had to have a rule that if, if we had more than seven, I think, seven visitors that they couldn't all be in the operating room at once, that they could, there could only be seven at a time, but sometimes we'd have a big group from a certain country come. And so they, they would be okay. They'd alternate seven would be in one case, seven others would be the next case, seven others for the next case.
0: Amazing. Well, and you know, uh, it takes that sort of, um, that sort of dedication in order to be able to do the education so that they can actually see what is going on. Now, not all of them will be able to do what you were doing, but there will be some that can.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, they also, the other thing I liked to do was to have time to get to know them. And so they generally would want to hang around in clinic and we could talk about uh, specific cases in between seeing patients. And then I always felt like if someone came from overseas to see me, that if they were gonna be there more than one day, I was gonna try and take them out to dinner and just socialize and and see what questions they would have for me. So I made a lot of friends that way.
0: All right. But it also keeps you very, very busy. Now, how did how did you balance that with uh, your family life and um, you know your everyday uh, job as a as a dad and all of that?
1: Well, you know, I had a lot of support. Clearly, you know, uh, and my my wife Nora was the biggest support of all. She filled in the gaps, you know. My kids were very understanding, but what I, you know, my whole staff—they knew that I wanted to put my kids first. So, for example, if my uh, son had a little league game at six in the evening, and I was on call and got a hip fracture that I needed to put on for that evening, I I wouldn't schedule it till eight thirty that evening because I was going to go to the little league game, or if my daughter had a uh, piano recital or her, she played uh, basketball too and so they we always put those things first and I would rather stay up and operate till midnight or something than to miss my kids sports or their or their activities like that so that was part of it but Nora you know was gone a lot Nora filled in the gaps and then when uh, during the summer we'd take the kids with us we'd all go on a lot we went to a number of international trips that way and um you know, and then after my kids got into college, then Nora and I traveled together and we made so many international friends that are still friends. Yeah. But And my group was very supportive. And also I made it a point that I wanted to have a dedicated team. So I didn't, so I could have, it would be like a, a professional baseball team or something where everyone knew their job and they were very good at it. So I had my own surgical scrub tech. I had a PA, I had my fellows and uh, all those things made me more efficient to where there weren't, there wasn't a lot of wasted time during the day.
0: Yeah. Well, just as a final comment, I, I, I know that your fellowship was, was considered one of the best in the, in the country for sure. And um, I know that you have a whole list of very devoted people that are fellows that are, uh, that that practice with you and they they would come for a year is that right
1: that's right so i had a clinical fellow that was like an apprentice that would stay with me for a year scrub on every case with me and then i would have other uh, research fellows that would come and uh and uh, would do research they would observe in surgery but not scrub because for generally if they weren't eligible for a, a u.s uh or for a texas license they wouldn't be able to scrub with me but still you. many of those people were very good researchers and very bright guys and both the research and the clinical fellows are just real leaders in arthroscopy and sports medicine now i'm just so proud of those guys yeah. i think that's the my biggest professional accomplish, accomplishment is training these guys
0: all right well steve it's been a real pleasure to to do this and um I want to thank everybody for uh, thank you for taking your time today and also thank everybody for listening to this uh, Giants in Sports Medicine and um, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Gary.
0: All right.